Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. And with me today, as always, Eric Whitehead, who is sitting right here at the control panel, uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's, and Phil Grant, who uh, manages, produces, and uh, edits Almost Daily Grant's, which is the must-read supplement to Grant's with an even better price. I mean, Grant's is cheap, but Almost Daily Grant's is, like, free, right? That's yeah. right. So you gotta read that. Oh yes, so we have one sponsor today, and that sponsor is uh, is a book. It happens to be uh, my book, a new book. It's called Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian, which is actually about uh, finance. You'll be hearing more about that. Uh, actually, you'll be hearing enough about that to make you wish you'd never heard the first time as the weeks wear on to publication, but uh, we're hearing more about the book presently. But in the meantime, Evan and Phil and Eric, I think that the world needs our attention. And this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, in case uh, you're impatient for what awaits you, I don't know, we've got a, a, one, a 99 basis point junk bond in Japan to uh, investigate. We've got uh, the Federal Reserve saying we need macro prudential insurance against excess, which uh, also requires a little bit of commentary. And we have um, a new issue of a new essay, op-ed essays by Andy Puzder, who is a very successful fast food executive. Fast food, right, Evan? Yes. Yeah, yeah. On high interest rates or hobbling growth by high interest rates, he first refers to the interest rates in place now. Uh, but first, ladies and gentlemen, before we get into anything else, I, I have, have you seen that um, Evan and Phil and Eric, did you notice today that um, uh, there's a story about uh, President Trump's trip to Japan and uh, he stopped at Yokosuka, which is the home port of the United States Navy's 7th Fleet. And uh, there he, I think his helicopter took him to the USS Wasp, which I think is a helicopter assault amphibious carrier and uh, tied up alongside or nearby the USS Wasp is the USS John McCain, a guided missile destroyer by the looks of her. And the story is, this is, unless this were in the Wall Street Journal, I would not believe it. But the Wall Street Journal itself says that, quote, the White House wanted the U.S. Navy to move out of sight the USS John S. McCain ahead of President Trump's visit to Japan, according to uh, an email that was slipped to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, they say reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Sorry, it's impugning the dignity of the paper. Now, as you might surmise, the ship was named after the father and grandfather of the late senator. The grandfather was an admiral. The father was an admiral too. The USS Hornet in Long Beach, California in the 1960s had the honor to be tied up next to the USS John McCain in an earlier edition of the ship. It was a fabulously good-looking ship, I recall. Sleek destroyer. Evan and Phil and Eric, I want to put it to you. Say you were serving on the USS John McCain and you knew how much Trump despised this guy, right? If, just if, there were trouble with China and they had to pick some ship to be the first through the Formosa Strait to look for mines and- uh, Take flak. Yeah, take flak. Which ship might that be? I would definitely be looking for a transfer to the USS Jared Kushner. <laughs> yeah, all right. So, um, Twitter's response is to recommend that um, the DC City Council change the name of Pennsylvania Avenue to John McCain Avenue. May it hustle and do that. My God, all right. That's, <laughs> that kind of gets us off in the proper frame of mind. Isn't it time for an advertisement? Uh, yeah. Sure is. Yeah, all right. So um, as I mentioned, ladies and gentlemen, this edition of Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Year is brought to you by a book, which is not yet published, but will be on July 23rd. It's called... Badgett, The Life and Times of the Greatest Victorian by uh, me, James Grant. Now, there are two testimonials to the excellence of this biography, and I, I would read these if I could. 
But I, it's so unseemly. I so I'm going to delegate my um, employees who have no choice in the matter. And Evan, would you please read the first? Uh, this is from Publishers Weekly. And Evan, if you would please read this with feeling. Uh, go ahead. Okay, so Publishers Weekly. It is a measure of Grant's talent as a biographer that Badgett appears as scintillating, as charismatic as he is reputed to have been in his life. Mm -hmm. Even readers not normally drawn to economic subjects will find themselves enjoying this lively and erudite biography and guide to financial Victoriana. Uh, I'd say close quote. Close quote. Yeah. Well, that was that was pretty well done, Evan. I'd like you next time to kind of milk a little bit more, you know, a little more slowly. <laughs> now, Phil, um, you're not only an employee, but you're also um, our, uh, Patricia's and my elder son. Phew. Yeah. you got to read the Mervyn King quote. Yeah, and, but and, should, uh, we, should, should we spread it out for later in the episode or should we no, well, we can, it we now? Can read, no, we can read it now. We have to read it just once, but go ahead. Right, now. <laughs> right all right. This can be the warm-up version. So this is... Uh, uh, open uh, quote. From, open quote. This is from uh, Mervyn King, who's the former governor of the Bank of England and author of The End of Alchemy, Mervyn King. The most perceptive and brilliant economic and political writer of his time deserves a biographer of equal literary merit. In James Grant, Walter Badgett has found him. That close quote. Close quote. Yeah, that's very well done. Again, a little bit, uh, uh, the tempo was a little bit uh, up, up. I up think our fourth the, and fifth uh, tries of this will get really good. Yeah, I think a little, a little more feeling. Uh, anyway, thank you, gentlemen. And uh, as I say, if I had a little bit uh, lower shame threshold, I would read those myself properly, slowly. Evan, so this this morning, and also in the Wall Street Journal, the, the same edition of the Wall Street Journal that told us about the doom, imminent doom of the USS John McCain, that edition of the journal has uh, featured an op-ed piece by Andy Pudzer, who's a first-named author, and John Hartley, second-named. John Hartley apparently does this for a living. He's an economics writer. Mr. Pudzer, as you may recall, uh, was tipped for a cabinet post in the Trump administration, but mostly he is uh, known as a former CEO of, of CKE Restaurants, and uh, he did well. He did good, did uh, Mr. Pudzer. He sold, I think he sold his business to uh, Apollo, no? If I'm not mistaken, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, so fast food, is it? Yeah, so CKE Restaurants, Restaurant Holdings Incorporated owns two brands. They're both regional uh, fast food. It's Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. Okay, this man has succeeded as a capitalist in his book, which is tipped here. I mean, apparently somebody else has written a book. In fact, Eric and Evan and Phil, I'm going to go so far as to say that everybody has written a damn book. That's the truth of it. But anyway, uh, Mr. Puzzle's book is The Capitalist Comeback, The Trump Boom and the Left's Plot to Stop It. And in the interest of sustaining and even uh, energizing the existing expansion, not actually a boom. Mr. Pudster and his co-author have written a piece called High Interest Rates Are Hobbling Growth. By high interest, they mean, they, they mean a 2% funds rate. And they say that there's no inflation. Uh, what we need is uh, is growth. What we need is dynamism, is a little animal spirits. And uh, and we don't need a high dollar exchange rate. That's for other countries to have high exchange rate. What we need is a, is a cheaper dollar and a little bit more juice in the blender, right? So uh, cut those rates. Cut those darn rates. Now, Evan, you um, have done the heavy lifting in this organization on uh, the bear market in, in restaurants restaurants, or the, so the, certainly the bear market in the economics of restaurant management, owing to, in part, uh, the reign of free capital and the, uh, the saturation in many parts of the country of fast food restaurants. No? So what Mr. Puzzle seems to be saying is they want even lower rates so there can be even more hardies and even more 
Carl Jr.'s. And Burger King's and, Burger and McDonald's. King. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a little and, bit ironic. I mean, the, the recession that uh, started in uh, December of 2007 and ended in June of 2009 was the worst recession since the Great uh, Depression. Given that fact, you would expect restaurants to actually contract in 2008 and 2009. But in fact, according to NPD Group, the number of restaurants actually grew in both those years, owing a large part to easy monetary oh, policy. Right. And they kept on right on growing through most of the boom over the last decade. But we've gotten to a point where there's just too many restaurants. So we, we, we've grown the number of places catering towards Americans faster than we've grown it the number might, of stomachs in America. It might be called misallocation of capital. It is. So right now, uh, TDN2K, which is um, a research group that focuses on the restaurant sector, reports that same-store comparable sales for restaurants fell 44 basis points in April. This is despite the strongest job market in 50 years, I mean, the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. And that same-store comp traffic actually was worse. It fell 3.5%. So on average, the typical restaurant had, you know, what is it, like one out of 25 people not coming back the next year or something along those lines. So it is a drought in the restaurant industry. And this guy is, uh, is calling for more of the tinder that actually caused this right, conflagration. This, this, this is the the per-blindness of the people, I don't know, what, kind of the modern monetary theorists and all but name, and they are so thick on the ground, they infuse or infect, if you will, the Trump administration. All these supply side guys now have turned into radical monetary policy adherence, lower rates, and the only kind of inflation they know is the kind that uh, shows up in the uh, highly specific price indices produced by the Commerce Department. Now, I'm not, I, that sounds snide. I don't mean to impugn the PCE, the core PC or the CPI, but there's other kinds of inflation. There are other kinds of inflation cause other kinds of problems. An acid bubble can pop and actually lead to a big downturn in the economy. We saw right. that We yeah. saw that in the dot-com bust. We saw that in the housing bust. That, well, we, we saw it in, ah, yes, we saw it in the time of Walter Badgett. And Badgett famously said, as uh, this publication perhaps has mentioned once or twice in the past year or two, uh, John Bull can stand anything, but he can't stand 2%, meaning that very low rates uh, work their mischief in the asset markets and not just with at the level of prices. Well, the irony in that is that 2% was long ago thought to be the, yeah. the the problem level, and we're here now, and it needs to go lower, according to the, the today's op-ed. Well, we are here, gentlemen, Eric and Evan and Phil, we are here with a 99.99% junk bond from Japan. Yes, uh, and this is notable because according to the Bloomberg article that came out today, this will be the first bond that's actually issued by a sub-investment grade issuer in Japan, not one that was downgraded right. to junk later on, but the first original issuance from a issuer that's junk. And kind of adding to the irony, the name of the company is Awful, or yeah. Eiffel. Awful is the- Awful. Right. Yeah, it's the transliteration is, is awful. That's like a nominative destiny, right? Yeah. yeah. Nominative. Okay, so um, it's A, well, for the record, um, Ladies and gentlemen listening, it's A-I-F-U-L. I think that we might have owned this company in our Japan fund years ago when we had a Japan fund. Now we didn't. It couldn't. It went broke. We never did that kind of thing. So um, here is a paraphrase quote from, this is somebody who, like Mr. Uh, Pudzer, seems to uh, not discern any other kind of trouble except the CPI kind. I'm, I'm going to read from Bloomberg's story about this particular junk bond issue, it, uh, which yields all of 99 basis points over, I think, a year and a half is the tenor of this thing. The milestone of a junk note in Japan is a welcome, quote, byproduct, close quote, of the Bank of Japan's negative interest rate policy, which has spurred more risk taken by investors but there is a long way to go before the nation has a functioning high yield market, according to so-and-so of Daiwa Securities. So yeah, so uh, this is a sign of progress in the eyes of Daiwa, right? We get, we get the 99 basis points over a year and a half, and it's so much better than the uh, uh, 16 basis point local government debt, but it is 
just you know, phantasmagoric that people can reason this way. What, so it's 99 basis points before tax. I suppose it's a little less after tax. What are the odds that the awful corporation <laughs> does a twofer, right? Goes goes bust again. I mean, it's Lives happened. up to its name. It's happened. When a company goes, what's the phrase in the junk? In the, uh, uh, chapter 22. Chapter 22, yeah. Anyway, so that's Japan. But anyway, I contest a little bit the claim, which I think is, if not made, is implied here. This is like an all-time low junk bond yield. No. Remember uh, uh, Telecom Italia? Yeah. We wrote about that. I, I think that was, that was below 1%, right? It was, it was 80 basis points. It had a coupon of higher than 1%, but it traded above yeah, par right. in December of 2017 and actually went below Yeah, it was, like, it was like 104 or something. And, yeah. uh, and it, was a, it was a double B. It was a strong junk name, but it still, it was a junk bond trading yeah. below one. Yeah, so that's that's the uh, that's the Mario Draghi touch. And uh, today's uh, continuing to uh, scour the day's press for you, ladies and gentlemen, on the listening end of this of this uh, entertainment. We have a, a very well uh, presented and written piece by Megan Green, who is global chief economist of Manual Life Investment Management. I think that's a Canadian outfit. And Ms. Green is talking about Mario Draghi's legacy. And of course, the big legacy is whatever it takes to save the euro, which she allows is certainly nothing to sniff at. But there's something else. And she thinks, she proposes here that uh, the invention of something called the TLTROS, Special Program of Low-Cost Loans. Uh, you've heard the acronym just now, but it's pronounced TELTRO. It's going to be on the inside talk about TELTROs. They are uh, special low-cost loans to banks. And she says this is the greatest invention of the post-crisis era because the central bank can extend credit to a commercial bank at, say, minus 1%, and the bank can lend to needy companies at, say, minus 10 basis points and pick up that spread and everybody's happy except for the savers. But you can manipulate the deposit rate as well, you see. So everyone's happy. You have to give them credit for one thing. What's that? Teltro sounds better than uh, Hail Mary. Yeah. Well, anyway, and she she allows does miss. This is this is this speaks to uh, something we'll get around to in a second, which is uh, uh, Randall K. Quarles, who is the vice chair for supervision of the governor's board of governors of the Fed. Mr. Quarles, you'll be hearing from us presently. But what Miss Green said is that uh, quote, as with all policies, however, there could be unintended consequences from using this powerful tool. Yeah, like the destruction of the price mechanism and the systematic misallocation of capital and the setting up of another bust on the tails of the preceding one that you had done your best to limit by instituting the policies that will give you the next bust. That's actually, that's not so much an unintended consequence as you know darn well what you're doing, so why are you doing it kind of consequence, right? Meanwhile, the market is rendering a, a relatively unambiguous verdict. If you look at just a simple price to books comparison for the stock 600 financials index, trades at a, a massive discount to, to book value. Um, well, this I is about Europe. In Europe, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, like 0.55 times, times book value or something. What, what the market's basically telling you is they want European banks to hold more capital. And what they're doing instead of requiring banks to hold more capital is to give them more credit than very, very easy terms. The kind of ironic thing is the easy credit, the low rates are kind of crushing bank net interest margins. I believe it was last week that um, ECB, is it Governor Benoit Corre, uh, came out and said, well, yes, this is hurting some banks, but the solution is to have mergers in the banks to basically embiggen the problem. Right, right. Make it huger. Yeah. So, um, Evan, uh, we now are going to turn to uh, Randall K. Quarles, as I mentioned a moment ago. He's the vice chair for supervision at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. 
Now, Richard uh, Clarita is, uh, we have said in grants, is kind of the Mike Pence of the Fed because he's a vice chairman, right? Yeah. But we have two vice chairmen. How could there be two Mike Pence's? Think about it. It's always nice to have redundancy. Yeah, backup. He's the backup. Mike Pence is vice, is a vice chair Randall K. Quarles. And, and uh, so Vice Chair Randall K. Quarles is out with a speech. And uh, Evan, I'm going to pass this document to you because even as I could not stand to read my own press, I can't stand to read this but for different reasons. So you can help us through this. So Quarles comes out and acknowledges something that we've been talking about, namely that low rates can lead to a pileup in risk in the uh, financial system, which can lead to a crash in the economy and lead to higher unemployment and lower... Wait, wait, wait. We, you said can. Can we be a little more affirmative? Yeah, it causes problems. It's going to happen, right? It will happen. Okay. But then he gets to the point of, so does this mean we should raise interest rates? And his answer is pretty affirmatively no. He says interest rates are great for kind of driving unemployment lower and driving activity higher. But we got this great other thing, this um, macro prudential policy, the Ability Say to that more slowly. Macro prudential policy. Now, how can that be bad? Any polysyllabic, uh, anyway, go on. I was being sarcastic. I mean. His problem with raising rates is, let's say the Fed raises its rates, I believe its uh, intervention rate is between 2.25 to 2.5% to say 3% to stop like, you know, piling up risk and leverage loans, the evisceration of creditor protection. Those might cause a fall in uh, activity. But if we just require banks to hold a little more capital or we browbeat them a little bit, we can make everything right and keep rates low. The only problem is it doesn't seem to work. And this actually was the conclusion of Jeremy C. Stein, who was a governor of the Fed. He's now retired and working at a university. Not just, what, MIT is not just a university. And I also believe he's uh, consulting with a very great investor. So I'm Jeremy Stein from a 2013 speech. It goes, while monetary policy may not uh, be quite the right tool for the job, it has one important advantage relative to supervision and regulation, namely that it gets in all the cracks. The one thing that a commercial bank, a broker dealer, an offshore hedge fund, and a special purpose ABCP, um, that's asset-backed commercial paper vehicle, have in common is that they all face the same set of market interest rates. To the extent that market rates exert an influence on risk appetite or on the incentives to engage in maturity transformation, changes in rates may reach into the corners of the market that supervision right. and regulation cannot. Into the cracks. Well said, Jeremy Stein. That's why I know that's your favorite Fed quote of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a lesson they learn like once every decade or so and then forget. All right. So, it, it is, you know, advertisements are like cockroaches. You ever seen this one? So um, I'm going to uh, forbid ladies and gentlemen, from reading my own good press on this book. But I would encourage you, because the publisher has encouraged me, to encourage you, if you have any interest in this book, just to pre-order the thing. Because that's going to, it's like painting the tape. People are going to think something's there when it actually might not be. You can fool the publisher. But the fool publisher wants to be fooled by a show of solidarity on the part of the listeners of Current Yield. So ladies and gentlemen, if you are feeling in a literary or even in a charitable frame of mind, you can go to Amazon. The publication date is July, July 23rd. Or you can go to uh, you know, www.grand.com pub as in publication.com slash badget b-a-g-e-h-o-t grantspub.com slash badget and there's a complete list of retailers with a book available for pre-order so pre-order the darn book no. okay i'd like to quote something using market prices to show that qe doesn't work all right are you familiar with de la rue yeah oh yes it's a very very old firm that uh, prints banknotes yeah it's a, it's a british company uh, it's publicly traded prints banknotes and helps design uh, currency i just printed off this from the uh, financial times its stock price is trading at a 15-year low, despite a decade of QE, printing money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what else do we... I, oh, yes. The last order of business, ladies and gentlemen, apart from a reprise to the USS John McCain, which deserves 
like the book More Than One Mention, Baosheng, B-A-O-S-H-A-N-G, is a medium-sized Chinese bank that has been the object of uh, contagion fears and a partial rescue uh, by the authorities of the People's Republic. I say partial because it turns out that uh, the unspoken but widely held assumption that the government would intervene to make good on anyone who extended an interbank loan, even uh, large kind of round lot size, chunky size loans would be bailed out. No, that assumption has been proved wrong. So there is uh, now not a guarantee, but a limited guarantee uh, to corporate depositors, interbank lenders in Baosheng's case. And here's a quote in a story in the Financial Times. This quote, this suggests a break of the implicit guaranteed payment in the interbank market. You wonder, if um, this might be the, uh, ever, ever pulled a, a strand of wool on a sweater and just kept pulling it? No, but I've played Jenga before. Yeah. You, you know what's really surprising to me about this? Baosheng, if I'm saying the name right, had a balance sheet of like 20 or $30 billion in assets. And if you look at the Chinese financial system, it's like 40 trillion in assets. I think it's $83 billion. Oh, $83 billion. Yeah. But still, $83 yep. billion to $40 trillion is relatively in a rounding right. error. It's just so much risk has been piled on that this little tiny institution, this fly spec that people probably had never heard of before this article came out, is now threatening, you know, the risk. Well, you know, as as always, there there is there are meant to be uh, details that uh, should uh, relieve apprehension, including that uh, so much of the bank's exposure was to the Tomorrow Group. There's another nominative case of nominative destiny. Uh, that's when tomorrow when you get your money. <laughs> yeah. But uh, wait, 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 wait. So there's more of this story, Evan, and that has to do. And also the uh, proprietor, the entrepreneur in the case, this case was. Uh, Mr. Xiao was once known for an extensive detail of an all-female bodyguard, which, uh, I don't know, that doesn't mean anything at all, except you have to look when he comes across the street. But here is the perhaps the money paragraph in the story on the failure of Baosheng, and that is, quote, China's National Audit Office said in April that some banks in central China had non-performing loan ratios of 40% at the end of 2018. All right, Evan, here's a little arithmetic for you. Mm -hmm. Good question. Banks, let us assume that banks you know, if 10% uh, equity capital, give them that very generous assumption. All right, so uh, we've got a, got a 100 jillion renminbi bank. So that's 10 jillion renminbi of capital. And they've got a loan book. What would you guess the loan book is? 70, 80% of balance sheet, maybe? Right, so let's call it the 70 jillion renminbi loan book. And 40% of that, my math is correct, is 280 jillion renminbi, compare that to the aforementioned 10 trillion or jillion renminbi in capital, what you got? Nothing good. What you got is, Evan, yeah. is nothing. Well, if it makes, well, if it <laughs> you makes got a hole in the yeah. ground. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, uh, well, this, it won't. Th this morning, the governor of the People's Bank of China, Yi Gang, came out and said, the bank is fully capable of managing risk at all small and medium-sized lenders. All right, that mean, you know what that means? Watch out for the big guys. It means watch out for the big guys. And also, when you make your escape, stay off the USS John McCain. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is Jim Grant on behalf of uh, Evan and uh, and Phil and, and, and Eric. And, uh, you know, thanks for being with us and uh, join us again next week.